Well, good morning, Parkview Church. My name is Doug Fern, and I am the uh, campus pastor at East Campus, and it's my joy and privilege to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. Um, uh, I'd invite you to open your Bibles, I sure hope you have them with you, um, to 1 Corinthians. And as a church, just a couple of weeks ago, we started a study um, that will carry us throughout the majority of this year um, in 1 Corinthians. And so it's an incredibly helpful book. I, I, I pray that in the last couple of weeks that you have been blessed as we've just um, began to look at it. And, that, and, I, and I trust that you will be able to see just some of the immediate sort of parallels between um, some of the challenges that the Church of Corinth faces faced and some of the challenges that we face as a people as well. And so um, this morning we are going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 um, verse 18 through chapter 2 verse 5. And so it is a kind of a long stretch of scripture here and I'm going to uh, read it for us before we start. And so um, again this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 starting in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Father, Father God, we thank you so much for your word this morning as it comes to us. Lord, we pray that you would um, speak to us right now. Lord, I pray that you would speak boldly through your word and that your spirit would do your work. Lord, that, that you would use this word to shape and to build your people. 
Lord, and I pray that you would even use this word to call those whom you have chosen. Lord, I pray that your gospel would be clear and that your son would be exalted. Lord, I pray that you would take these words which we believe to be eternal and true and that you would write them on our very hearts. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, earlier this week I was sitting in my office and uh, a friend had texted me and uh, the text message was simple. Simply just said, hey, I'd love to get together sometime. I'm having a difficult time thinking through some of the things that are happening in our world. And I'd love to just process this with you. Perhaps many of you are thinking the same thing, maybe even having many of the same conversations as we look at the world around us and the, the events of our day. Um, in some ways, we are deciding how to respond. Last couple of months have been just wild. 2020, this year, has been an interesting year to say the least, and it has caused us to make decisions that we never thought we would be having to make. I was going to a friend's house last night, and the, right before I pulled up, I just texted, masks or no masks? You know, what's the protocol here? What's the etiquette? Um, we had to decide, right? This is a year of making decisions, significant ones and really small ones, but ones that are unusual, ones that we never thought we'd see ourselves having to make. In fact, as a church, we find, us, find ourselves in a position where we are making, this is a very critical year. A year where we are deciding, essentially, as a church, what's next, right? We're calling out to God. We're praying to God. We're seeking his gene is not based on the popularity of his speech, but in the power of his subject. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, we see power is a theme that is presented that, that, that Paul zooms in on and shows that God displays his wisdom and his power ultimately through the cross. I just want to make a couple of points about this power. The first thing that we see in the text is that this power, the message of the cross, it defies conventional wisdom. Look at verse 19 and 20. For uh, the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Through the cross, God has turned the wisdom of this world on its head. He, he has taken a symbol which in the ancient world only represented evil, corruption, and rejection of the worst kind and placed it at the very center of his movement, of God's movement to redeem humanity. Divine and human values are completely at variance with one another. And the cross, which is the way of salvation, though it seems the height of feebleness and folly, is actually the greatest manifestation of God's wisdom and God's power. Where human wisdom and ability are unable to deal with the most fundamental need, God himself takes action. And he does so in the most surprising way. Our hero, our savior, 
was not lifted up and celebrated by all. Clothed in splendor and crowned in glory when he walked on this earth. Our Lord Jesus Christ was rejected by those he came to save. He was deserted by those whom he led. He was strung up by those who were in charge and appeared powerless to all those who watched. The crucifixion is not conveniently swept under the rug as an unfortunate part of the story, but rather it's placed at the very center of the story. Brothers and sisters, we should be sure today that the, the message of the cross, the, the power of the cross, it stands against the wisdom of the world. It's unlike the wisdom of the world. As the world looks, the world says that's foolishness. That's crazy. But for those who believe, it's God's power. It's God's power. So it divides conventional wisdom, but it also, we recognize that the cross divides humanity. Divides humanity. Go back to verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. As we begun our study in 1 Corinthians, we have discovered that this church, the church at Corinth, was flawed, to say the least. The, the church had problems. The church at Corinth was a hot mess. The first problem that Paul addresses as he writes to the church at Corinth is the problem of division. People had divided themselves up into groups by aligning themselves with their preferred leader. The one that they connected with the most. I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas. Paul challenges the divisions that have emerged within the church by calling their attention to the cross. Which serves as the ultimate dividing line. This is what the cross is. It's the ultimate dividing line. It distinguishes the church from the world. Through the foolish message of the cross, God willed to bring saving knowledge of himself to those whom he called. There are those who will either see the cross as it truly is and surrender to God as their Lord and Savior... They will receive the power and the wisdom of God. Or there are those who will reject it and replace it, oftentimes with themselves. In our day and age, yes, even in our church, there is an increasing potential for polarization. Whether it's politics or education whether it's race or masks, we are constantly threatened with polarization. Brothers and sisters, let us never forget that the cross is the only polarity that is of ultimate importance. That the blood shed on the cross was shed to make us one people with one Lord. The cross is the ultimate dividing line. It divides humanity. So it defies conventional wisdom. It divides humanity. But it also displays God's transforming power. But to us who are being saved, Paul says, the cross, it is the power of God. This power, the, the ability of the cross is to, to make God known to man. To accomplish salvation. To defeat evil. To transform lives and values. 
Those who are being saved, as, as those who are being saved, we experience the power as he, he transforms us and takes us from darkness to light, from death to life. God's saving power is only possible because of the cross. And as we consider the cross, we are reminded of not just who we are, but who we once were. And, and we see the transformation that is only possible as a result of the cross. The cross is God's greatest manifestation of his wisdom and his power. Now to help kind of drive home the point, Paul provides two helpful illustrations. And the first one we see um, is in verse 26 through 31. And this is the people of the cross. He, he points as he makes the power, or the, this point of God's power and how it stands against the conventional wisdom of the day. He says, you want to see what I'm talking about? Essentially, take a look in the mirror. Look at verses 26 to 31. Paul turns his attention specifically to the people at Corinth. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. The first illustration is the people to whom Paul is writing. He asked the recipients of this letter to consider their own calling, their own conversion. It's an interesting tactic to be sure. The, the way of the cross is foolishness in the eyes of the world. In fact, God deliberately chose those of the world who the world sees as foolish, as feeble, as forgettable. You need proof, Paul says? Look in the mirror. An interesting tactic. But it's true. It's true for them. It's true for us. Look at verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. This is, to be clear, not how any one of us would have drawn it up. Shouldn't he, shouldn't God, as he considers his plan to redeem and rescue humanity, shouldn't he consider zeroing in on the talented and the gifted? Looking for those with potential and position, the, the most powerful and popular among us, and think, oh yeah, now, now I can work with this. But that's not what God does. That's not how God works. He chooses what is foolish, what is weak. God chooses that which is low and despised. Why? Why would God choose the weak things of this world to do his work? Well, he doesn't leave us guessing. He tells us. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. His goal in operating this way is to leave zero room for us to boast in ourselves. No room for us to step back, take in our salvation and our transformation and think to ourselves, of course God chose me. I mean, why wouldn't he? Look what I bring to the table. 
Because it is this God who unites us in Christ, and, and Christ becomes both our wisdom and power, then we boast, when we boast, we boast not in ourselves or in one another, we boast only in the Lord. For our salvation is dependent not on our effort, not on our accomplishment, but on the effort and the accomplishment of Jesus Christ alone. This is great news. Parkview, this is great news for us right now, this morning. This is how God works. God doesn't need those with the most impressive resumes, the badges and the medals, the track record to show. He doesn't zero in on those whom the world props up, the popular and the prestigious. He works, God works, through weakness. Through the things that this world considers forgettable. If you this morning find your back up against a wall, maybe knocked down, exhausted, maybe you look at your circumstances or even your past, and you're convinced, maybe you've even been told that you have nothing to offer. If that describes you this morning, God says you matter. God looks at you and he says, now there is an excellent candidate to display my wisdom and my power to the world. That's what God says. God loves to use those who the world passes by. He loves to. He's got a track record of doing it. It's how he operates it's good news for us, right? Now, now, here's the deal. Some of you have power, right? Some of you have pretty phenomenal resumes. Some of you have money, a tremendous amount of experience. Some of you are tremendously talented and gifted in ways that the world says we'll value that. Well, there's good news for you here too. God doesn't exclude you. Notice Paul says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He does not say, not any of you were wise. Not any of you were powerful. Not any of you were of noble birth. He doesn't say that. He says, not many. Which would imply that some were. In fact, if you look at early church history, if you look at the apostolic way of life, you will see that there were, there were, many, there were some that were in the congregation that were able to open up their homes. They had homes that were large enough that people could meet in. They had money. Some did. And this is one of the things that make the early church so beautiful. Is that it was a movement that consisted of slave and free. Rich and poor. Male and female. And it's a wonderful reminder. And as we consider the cross, this is one of the things that we should take away. Is that God's grace can reach anyone. It does not matter this morning what your resume looks like. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. You are not outside the reach 
of God's grace. And that's what the cross reminds us of. I was reading a biography on Eugene Peterson, a famous pastor, scholar, prolific author of last century. And he, he tells uh, of a time when he was in seminary in New York. Went to seminary and uh, found himself uh, kind of in an internship through the seminary at a church in New York City. And uh, he says that the, 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 the preacher of that church, his name was George Arthur Buttrick, was a phenomenal preacher. And he sat under his teaching, had the tremendous privilege to sit underneath his teaching and be shaped and molded during his seminary years. And um, he says that he didn't realize it at the time, but this, this preacher was one of the, the, had a reputation to be one of the greatest preachers of the day. And uh, he, every Sunday night they would go back to his house and they would just, they would talk about message and he would, he would take off his shoes, he would sit on the floor and the, the pastor would just, they would just have a conversation together. And one of these Sunday evenings, uh, a question came up in the group among the, the other interns and one of the question was, the question was, what is the most important thing that you do as you prepare for your Sunday messages? Remember, this is, this is an individual who had a reputation throughout the country as being one of the, the most um, one of the most effective preachers. What is it that you do that's the most important thing in preparing for your message? And his response was a response that nobody had anticipated. He said, the most important thing I do to prepare to preach on Sunday mornings is I spend two hours every Tuesday and every Thursday walking around the neighborhood. This is a neighborhood, Eugene Peterson goes on and says, he knew the neighborhood well. It was a neighborhood that was made up of primarily middle and lower class, working class people in New York City. And the most important thing that this man who had a phenomenal reputation did as he prepared to minister God's word was spend time with those people. It's a, it's a wonderful example of really what the way of the cross is. Right? As Christians, as followers of Jesus, the temptation can be to run after what the world says is important. What the world says is strategic and is valuable. And to say, I'm all in on that. The way of the cross turns those values on their head. Lastly, in verses 1 through 5 is the, sort of the next illustration of the, the way of the cross. Um, we see the preaching of the cross in verses 1 through 5. Paul moves from the, considering the calling of the church at Corinth to considering his own preaching. Look at verse 2 and verse 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. Paul was not preoccupied in delivering eloquent or impressive speeches. His preaching at Corinth lacked the kind of speech that would dazzle crowds and gain applause. He was deliberate in his avoidance of rhetorical virtuosity because he was determined to focus on Jesus Christ, the crucified Messiah. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't alter his message to gain their approval. The message of this preacher, to be sure, was the message of the cross. The message of the cross will never be, folks, popular among the world around us. 
It lays low the pride of our intellect and our ambition and our ability. Yet the message of Christ crucified is both God's wisdom and it is ours. There's always a temptation to abandon the message of the cross. This decision is rarely made consciously and doesn't happen spontaneously. In fact, it often starts from a a good desire to reach the world around us. To present a message that is palatable. Focusing on topics such as self-improvement, partisan politics, with maybe a little sprinkling of Jesus and its myths. There's no shortage of churches throughout the ages that have abandoned the message of the cross. Oftentimes it comes from an attempt to be relevant to the culture around them. And as they attempt to become relevant... They present a sanitized version of Christianity. Parkview, as we consider what's next, as we consider the way of the cross, we must be determined to preach the cross. To keep the cross where it deserves to be. Though it may not be the most attractive message, it must be our central focus And as we preach the cross, whether it's to the believer or to the unbeliever, we see three things just happen. This is why it's so critical. The first thing is, in preaching the cross, it is necessary to continue to do it and to keep it central to our ministry at Parkview because it is necessary to comprehend the gravity of our sin. Nowhere is the truth about our sin seen more clearly than at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That it would take the death of God's Son to put it away shows how serious God takes our sin. If we want to keep ourselves from having a trivial, lack, just completely unconcerned response to sin, then we we will preach the cross. If we, want, if we want our people, if we want ourselves to take sin seriously, we must commit to preaching the cross. It is in the cross that sin's gravity is made clear. When men see the cross, they think to themselves, that is what happened on account of my sin. The soul that sins will die. Men and women are perishing. We do not begin to understand our sin unless we stare at the cross. It's necessary so we can comprehend the gravity of our sin. Secondly, preaching the cross also declares the the necessity of God's grace, the glory of God's grace, the reach of God's grace. As we consider our sin, the human predicament is that we realize we have nothing within our own strength and ability to do anything about it. It is only by God's grace that we can be saved. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 and 13 puts it like this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. This is our problem, the result of our sin, that we are cut off from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's our human predicament. No hope. Verse 13. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The way that this predicament is solved is only through the shedding of Jesus' blood. And as we consider the cross, we begin to understand the grace that God has lavished on us. And this grace revolutionizes the way that we view ourselves, the way that we consider God, and the way that we think about those around us. I'm, I think of the, the parable in, in Luke 19 of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is verse 9 through 14. He also told this parable, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, give the tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. One man stood before God and said, I've checked all the boxes. I stand in the right place. Of course you should choose me. I'm not like this lowly person over here, a sinner. It's not the way of the cross. Somebody who understands the gravity of their sin and the grace of God, the only response that they can have is, God, forgive me, for I am a sinner. This is a posture that, that brings us into God's kingdom, the humility to recognize our need in God's grace, and it also determines every step of our path as a follower of Jesus. It is the way of the cross. It's not going to be a popular way, because the rest of the world doesn't get it. They don't live like that. But it's our way. And finally, when we preach the cross, we provide an opportunity for people to respond in faith. It's necessary to preach the cross so that people can respond in faith. Think of Acts chapter 2 and Peter, the day of Pentecost when Peter proclaimed the death and resurrection of Jesus. The response of the crowd as they listened to his words was simple. What is it that we should do? That's what God did for me. What now should I do? And the Christian answer is simple. Don't look for spectacular signs to prove it. Don't line it up to the wisdom of the world to see if it stands true. The answer is, what should you do? Respond in faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's only by the power of the cross that we have the ability to transform our lives, to be saved from our sin. And every step that we take as a follower of Jesus is a step of faith. 
Faith in a Savior who loves us. Faith in a Savior who died for us. Faith in a Savior who invites us, gives us new life and says, follow me. Same one who was rejected and despised says, follow me. We have an amazing opportunity before us as a church. As we consider, as we dream, as we decide what lies ahead of us. Parkview Church, brothers and sisters, the way of the cross must be the way for our church. It must be. It's not, it's not, it's non-negotiable. As we seek to be obedient, as we open up this year in 1 Corinthians, open up God's word and discover what God's calling is for his people. And as we take steps, one step after another of obedience, here's the deal. Probably, as we do this, there's a very good chance that many around us won't understand it. Won't get it. In fact, if, if that's the truth, we can have some sort of confidence that we're actually heading in the right direction. Because this is the way of the cross. The world won't get it. Divides a line. Divides a line. But it's, it's the way for us as a people. And I get excited when I think about what God's going to do in us and through us. Get excited about it. So as we take one step after another of faith, we do so in obedience to his word. We do so united as his people. And we do so standing at the foot of the cross. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for just your word this morning, um, for the direction that you give us in it and through it, Lord. And I pray that as a people that we would be faithful to your word. Lord, I just confess that often I am tempted to want to live a life, say words, or do things that win the applause of the watching world. Lord, but we recognize as we live the way of the cross, but we see how that way ended for our Lord and Savior. And we ask that while this is an incredibly necessary path that we walk as a church, Lord, that you would give us your strength, that you would give us your encouragement, that you would give us your spirit, that we would keep obedient and that we would stay on the path that you have set before us. Lord, and as a result, we ask not primarily for relevance, but primarily for endurance, for faithfulness. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.